Today, we travel beyond the wind door. I did want to move but on, but it occurs yeah, to me that we we can't actually move on to the giggle before we address the elephant in the room, which is that Wild Blue Yonder ends with oh, yes. the final scene with Bernard Cribbins playing Wilfred Mott. I'm not even sure if he's actually in the giggle because we don't actually we don't see him. I don't think there's any lines from him. Uh, there's just a see, brief little line from right him that the they beginning. spliced in, and I think there was a stand-in. Okay. Yeah. Play himself because okay. apparently, according to Russell D. Davies, not long after Wild Blue Yonder went out, that was the only scene that Bernard was able to shoot before he passed away. And mm-hmm. he, there were a lot more scenes they had planned for him in the script and everything. And he sadly passed before they could shoot them. He even had scenes planned for the Sar Beast too, and they had to rewrite it to the little bit where he's uh, the, where fourteen's all like, "I loved that man." And even that part kind of made me well up a little bit. Just, you mm-hmm. know, because I'm like, 14, I'm right with you, man. He was a great guy. <laughs> it also makes that one line towards the end of the giggle where 15 mentions Sarah Jane is gone. Yeah. Because Elizabeth, Elizabeth Slaughter passed Slayton, yeah. a long, like, uh, hold on a second. Back in 2011, God. Um, yeah, she was she was about the same age as my mom at that point too, which mm-hmm. was really scary. I wasn't sure that we were going to get to see Wilfred Mott again. I thought that the fact that he wasn't in the first one implies that he just wasn't available, or the or they had already passed. Yeah. So the fact that we we get to see one last scene with him. Oh, oh goodness, Donna! Oh, my goodness, Donna! I said so! Wilfred Mott. Oh, now I feel better. Now nothing is wrong. Nothing in the whole wide world. Hello, my old soldier. I never thought I'd see you again. After all these years. Oh, Doctor, that lovely face! He dies like a couple days after the airing of the episode. No, no, no. He passed well before. He shot the scene that you see in Wild Blue Yonder, and that was the only thing he was able to shoot before he passed. So he'd been dead pretty much a year before this this episode went out. So this episode was released posthumously. I did not realize that. uh... He's he's been gone a while, Mm. unfortunately. I've been trying to follow the news of mm-hmm. who actors, you know. Yeah, fair enough. Like and stuff. So that that's that. So, but yeah. So he's been he'd been gone a while. Well, unfortunately. Very bittersweet, but yeah. I'm glad that they got that one last. Like I, th- it was. I think it was important to to tenant yeah. as well. Like you, you, you can see a little bit of the crossover there in terms of how happy 14 is and therefore David Tennant is to see Wilfred Mott be able to join them again. I think there was like some sort of promotional picture that had the three of them posing in shot during it, production. It's a wonderful picture. 
Mm-hmm. It really is. All right. So, <laughs> the giggle. Kate Lethbridge Stewart. What do we do this time, Doctor? How do we fight the human race? Something entered this world. Oh, but he is recognizing me. Who is he? The one who waits. Open fire! Why does it have to be this? Your fight is with me! I don't know. I can save your life this time. Worldwide premiere. Where Neil Patrick <laughs> Harris, yes, where Neil Patrick Harris steals the show by just oh, absolutely just being I, so camp in every I, moment. I will admit when I was heard that Neil Patrick Harris was announced as to be in this episode and I saw the promo shot of him in character, I just I immediately knew he was going to be the toy maker because mm-hmm. I had some familiarity with this character from other stuff. I expanded okay. universe materials with the character. So I was like, if he's not the celestial toy maker, I'm going <laughs> to fucking riot because oh. there's just no way in hell that's not the celestial toy maker. Mm. Um, now, granted, they we named him to the toy maker because celestial while it does have that con- terminology of being you know space you know involving space and everything he was originally called the celestial toy maker in the original 1960s serial because michael goff who played him alfred in the tim burton mm. Jim, joel schumacher batman movies for those one oh drink. really okay yeah it was one of mm. his early roles way before he played alfred but anyway he was dressed up like a Chinese Mandarin, basically, in this kind of thing. And Celestial was, at that time, a oh. term that's associated with Chinese people. And it has since become a racist colloquialism. Yeah, okay. I Before did not know that. Before it that intergalactic thing. Yeah. And there were some elements of that story that are kind of little racist by today's standards. Mm-hmm. And to Russell T. Davies' credit, he did not try to... PC the character, as some people would put it. Mm-hmm. He actually made some of the racist elements that were present in the special a character trait of yes. the toy maker. That that because, is one of the which I things. think makes perfect sense for an entity like the toy maker because this is a guy who or an entity who thrives on playing games with people. And mm-hmm. what better game for someone like that who doesn't even care is just like feels as he's so above humanity and all the other beings of the universe. What better game with winners and losers? Bigotry. Mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely with you on that. I'm sure that there's like multiple points at which it's pointed out, but like that very first interaction with um, Charles Banerjee. I really must apologize for the rain. You must be used to sunnier climes. I was born in Cheltenham. I was curious. I, I I wanted a bit of research on that. I, I wanted to know how many Indian citizens the UK would have had back in 1931. What I ended up finding out is that while obviously it was in the post-World War era that there was a lot more immigration from India to the UK, even back then, there was like estimates for UK Indian population was around... 10,000. And that's very rough because they were only starting to do things like censuses and stuff like that back then. Mm-hmm. So while there's definitely historical precedent, you know, for those 
people, especially with Geo too, be like, they didn't have Indian people back then. It's like, no, they did. He can absolutely have been born in Cheltenham and have worked with John Logie Baird. So shut up. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, I actually saw similar complaints during Matt Smith's run when, when they when those black characters showed up in that mm -hmm. uh, Vampires of Venice episode. Mm -hmm. I did some research and it turns out there was actually a significant portion of the population of Italy that did come from Africa during that time period. So there those go. people can shut their mouths. <laughs> <laughs> it's like any sign of a person of color that's in a time period that's always been depicted as strictly white. It feels like a glaring anachronism to people unless they actually take the time to do research. Mm -hmm. And some of these people don't want to bother. And it sucks. <laughs> I will say that if they did bend extant history a bit in modern pieces, just to further diversify the cast of a show or movie, I'm totally fine with that. Having now seen both the original 1974 movie adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express and the Kenneth Branagh version, the diversity and race-swapping of key characters in the Brana outing is part of what makes me like it more. And it integrates very well into the story by potentially making racism a component of that story. But regardless, it doesn't matter. There are Vulcans and other aliens played by black actors in Star Trek, and I don't need that explained to me. In the most recent Dungeons & Dragons movie, our sorcerer Simon is introduced early as a descendant of Elminster Almar, the Gandalf of the Forgotten Realms world. And when Simon sees an image of his ancestor, he's played by a black man. The movie doesn't outright say that the movie's version of Elminster is black, or that this is Elminster, indeed the cast list doesn't say one way or another, but there are a lot of hints. Regardless, it's showing a black man as part of the lineage of powerful wizards. And that is remarkable, considering how white or culturally segregated the setting used to be. I could count on one hand the number of non-white heroes in the many pieces of tie-in fiction I read. There is no reason none, to not include characters played by a wide variety of races and cultures in any new piece of media for Doyleist or Watsonian reasons. But even the one seemingly legitimate argument the bigots have just shows how ignorant they are. But I like, as you say, that therefore they make that part of the toy maker's personality because yeah. it also lends a certain weight to like the game that he chooses to play with the human population it dovetails with his own button pushing idiosyncrasies to like try to jab at any differences in order to get people to react because like then yeah. if you get someone to react debate me if you get someone to react you've won to a certain extent yeah it, he even had some of that in some audio stories I heard 
with the character. Because mm. this one two-hander between him and the Eighth Doctor's companion, Charlie, uh, and the story is weirdly enough called Solitaire. It's a really unsettling story, but it's just, it's a wonderful just back and forth between the pair of them. And it's also kind of unsettling too, because it begins with Charlie entering the toy maker's realm, uh, like shop basically, but she has no memory of who she is. And so it's like already Charlie's on the back foot, whereas the toy maker is already aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And and it's just, it's a really wonderful little hour long story that's just between the pair of them. That's just great. It seems from a little bit of the research that I've been doing that Doctor Who has been doing its best to pull in old actors and old characters reprising previous roles, whether we're talking about like some of the old doctors showing up, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Tom Baker as the curator in Day of the Doctor, but also apparently pulling in, like in the case of the first doctor, of course, they had to get a lookalike to play him at various points during the last few years. To be clear, for those not in the know, the actor that played the first Doctor, William Hartnell, has been gone for quite some time. Even in one of the last times he appeared as the first Doctor, the crossover episode called The Three Doctors, Hartnell was in failing health and had all of his scenes shot separately. That was in 1973, and he later died of heart failure in 1975. I only bring it up because the first Doctor has only been recast sparingly, using old footage whenever possible. In more recent years, they found an actor to reprise the role, not only for the show, but also for Big Finish audio dramas, one David Bradley. To date, he is the only previous Doctor that they have recast like that, I personally don't have a strong opinion on recasting old incarnations of the Doctor, though I can see why they did so for Hartnell's incarnation, especially if they went back to questioning his origins during Jodie Whittaker's run. I remember finding a specific scene uh, with Whittaker's Doctor where they brought back McGann and Sylvester McCoy at one point. I fanboyed seeing McGann in there (laughs) because I I, I met that guy and he was just, and also I just love him as an actor. So it's just like, I'm glad to see you on screen again. Also, there's there's that wonderful line where it's like, why aren't you wearing a robe? It's like, I'll wear whatever I want. Thank you very much. Sorry, why are you not wearing? I don't do robes. There's always one. That's the big difference. I am a manifestation of our consciousness. I can wear what I like. And that's very eight, actually, in the <laughs> audios, especially. You know, he's very standoffish like that mm-hmm. sometimes. But because I don't know enough about older Doctor Who, and I'd never seen her in anything before, uh, Bonnie Langford's return as Melanie Bush uh, was a revelation. She was a bit of a controversial companion, and Companion of the Sixth and Seventh Doctors was used controversial in the sense that people were thinking the show was being sexist, because they initially built her up as this really great computer genius character, then dissolved into this companion who was like, what do we do, Doctor? And screaming at monsters and all that stuff. The audios actually handle Mel really well. Like, there's a one audio story that involves uh, the Sixth Doctor and Mel facing off against Davros, creator of the Daleks, but there's very minimal Dalek influence on the proceedings. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where Mel has had enough of Davros's bullshit and six <laughs> these like robot things on him. And it's like, wow, don't fuck with Mel. <laughs> I really enjoyed Melanie Bush's energy in the special. 
And on some level, it also felt like it was kind of necessary. One of the things that the Toymaker throws in the 14th Doctor's face is how many of the companions of the last 20 years have ended up badly. Martha, last we saw her, had some sort of happy ending with Mickey, as well as Rose Tyler with a version of her Doctor, and these specials also give a much happier ending for Donna. But what with the culmination of the stories of Amy and Rory, Clara, Nardle, and Bill, it's good to bring back staples of Doctor Who prior to its reboot in 2005, companions that survive and thrive to this day. Ace and Tegan were apparently brought back in the 13th Doctor specials, and therefore Mel Bush is a continuation of that trend. So, Jesse... uh, (laughs) Once more, we're yeah. hogging the spotlight here. Yeah, sorry but, about that's that. That's fine. But you did mention that th- this is your least favorite in descending order. So mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind, could you get into your feelings and or misgivings <laughs> about this one? I, I know this is technically going to be like the central conceit of the discussion that led to this episode happening. But mm-hmm. before we get to that part, could you address some of the other aspects of the show? Yeah, so I am, uh, I didn't like this episode. Like, I just did not like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the toy maker was not compelling to me in any way. I, like, mm. I thought that, you know, like, Neil Patrick Harris did a good job, but I didn't like it. Like, I didn't like him in it. He did the best that he could with what he was given, and he's a phenomenal actor. But I, I thought that the premise was not compelling i thought that the how with the like signal in the screens on everything in everybody's mind from the beginning of time made even less sense than doctor who usually does the german accent was way too over the top um which i realized was a choice and was on purpose Mm. uh, but it didn't didn't work for me yeah i don't think that the toy maker is a compelling villain just period especially Mm. for a what is effectively like a finale to this piece. Well, I didn't react as badly to the toy maker as Jesse did. I can kind of see where he's coming from. As a character, the toy maker wasn't exactly one episode of Hartnell's run. So it's not like he has a long-standing history like the Master or Davros or other recurring villain. He has a strong trickster vibe, not unlike Q or Mr. Mix's Pitlick which I did respond to. But the only thing he really has going for him is the idea of this return to stuff from the long-ago Doctor Who past. An idea that began with the Timeless Child and continued with the twin plots of the Division and the Fugitive Doctor. At this point, I feel like I'm really going to have to dig into Whitaker's run, as the more tidbits I learn, the more I want to know. I do wonder, though, if part of it was due to paratextual reasons. By many accounts, viewership of Doctor Who is at its lowest point, since the end of Sylvester McCoy's run, based on one graph I found. Its peak viewership was at the tail end of David Tennant's run, the 2009 specials. The graph adds further context, indicating that interest was declining around the end of Peter Capaldi's run, got a big bump once Jodie Whittaker began her run, and then has declined ever since. Why do I bring this up? For those that were watching the 2022 Whittaker specials, the final episode of that 
ostensibly already gave the audience a quintessential Doctor Who ending, facing off with the newest incarnation of The Master. Which means that technically, they played their strongest card, and then immediately led not into Shudigatwa, but The Return of Tenet. From a ratings perspective, one can see why, regardless of what anyone will admit to, reception of Whitaker was mixed at best, and reviewers said of the previous season, the plotline with the Flux, that it was Whitaker's strongest performance as the Doctor, but the weakest of her overall seasons. So they could have wanted to give the show a shot in the arm, by bringing back both Tennant and Russell T. Davies as a do-over. But that left Davies now having to come up with a new opponent for the culmination of his arc. They even go out of their way to try and make the Toymaker scarier than the Master, by suggesting the latter was easily outsmarted by the former, and stored in a golden tooth. Unfortunately, that's a great example of telling instead of showing, and so in some ways, that line fell flat. Maybe the fact that this was my first return to Doctor Who in years meant it didn't bug me. Maybe it's because it's what I expected on some level from Davies. I usually prefer substance to style, and unfortunately, there was a lot more style than substance in parts of this episode. But let's get back to the original discussion and talk it through before I render a final assertion. I think that the stuff that it says about... The premise, like the theme and premise that the toy maker, who is the like elemental force of play being the villain, Mm. like doesn't make sense to me in the sense of like, so does that mean that play is inherently bad? Does that mean that this force has been corrupted somehow with the other two? At the very least, you could see what they were trying to say with the episode and with the themes and with the villain. But this felt very confused. It felt like Mm. it felt like they needed to bring somebody back or they needed like somebody was like, oh, I remember the toy maker. It was really fun. I want to do that. And then worked backwards from there. Um, even to the point of seeding it in the previous episode where it's like, oh, I introduced a game at the edge of space. And that's how I, you know, let play into the universe mm-hmm. like there wasn't any before it. Uh, it just, yeah, bounced off hard, even like the ending, like the the, the ending actually worked for me. Like when mm-hmm. the, the conversation that we were having on on Discord that you've characterized as a pseudo argument is um, not like I, I don't even have a problem with that. My take basically I was I guess you could say I was playing the devil's advocate. My really my point was that people who do have a problem with it are not necessarily acting in bad faith. Or not like coming from a position of bad faith and that it is a valid grievance. And I like I understand that grievance. I don't share it. I Mm. thought that it was nice. I thought it was good. Like I, I, I appreciated the ending, especially the way that it had been, you know, I think that they that they could have done more to reinforce it. I've already mentioned that with the idea of like he needs to slow down. It's affecting his performance. It's making things worse. 
he's not the doctor that he was right now. He needs to stop and take a break and get his shit together. Um, and giving him a retirement and a family, I actually, I thought that was great. I thought that was a nice cap to the story and a great redemption of the original Donna ending, which, yeah, mm -hmm. like I said, as I mentioned before, nobody, you know, everybody kind of had a problem with. I just think that everything around that did not serve that story well. And I, I think that it was too much of a distraction and I think it was too sort of scattershot and just didn't vibe. She threw a lot at me there, which is fine. <laughs> but let me try uh, addressing some of that. As you've been talking, I, I've had been processing my own thoughts. I wasn't expecting some of this stuff, which I like. It, it makes for a more <laughs> dynamic conversation. So you're right in terms of how the story introduces the concept of play as being like one of these axes that Davy sets up, or the Doctor, but Davies through the Doctor sets up as being like as right. important as chaos and order. I think that the way I looked at it especially when you take into account some of the other things that the toy maker says is that it's talking about a very specific aspect of play which feels sort of centric to the play of children and as we know children they're at a stage where they're like still learning empathy yeah so the idea of play that is on some level kind of a bit sociopathic and it, is in, it doesn't have values associated with it. The only thing that's important, as the toy maker puts it, is that there are winners and that there are losers. Yep. And so it's a very top and bottom mentality. Black that and white mentality, too. Exactly. Which doesn't need to be endemic to the overall concept of play, but just in terms of, like, from a completely neutral perspective, I can see why the toy maker would be emblematic of that. At his base level, the toy maker is a god. And even gods imagined by humans can be cruel or fickle or victim to any failing of humanity. This particular god doesn't even ostensibly have any human values, rather like the not-things from the previous episode. He only cares about two things, winning and his own rules. That makes him very like other tricksters in fiction. Of course, I think what was getting under Jesse's skin was more the idea of these values being the only ones associated with play. Play doesn't have to specifically be cruel or competitive. And the idea that the Toymaker is an avatar of play defines play in a negative way. That... I do get. The truth is, the idea of play doesn't feel like it was given enough room to breathe. There is something in there that could have been explored, just not in an hour-long special. I can see how play could be considered a median point between chaos and order. Games have rules, and therefore there is order. But those rules only define the game within a certain scope, Therefore, anything that is not expressly forbidden by rules is the realm of chaos. But these aren't text in the special. This is after-the-fact musing by me. All we actually have is what is said, so the text of the film can definitely feel short-sighted. 
Especially when the earlier episodes were tackling the LGBTQ spectrum. And now the Doctor brings up non-binary as a concept again, but we only get a single third thing to add to the mix. As we've already gotten into a little bit, he is constantly putting himself into situations where he is playing some sort of game with whoever he's interacting with and trying to come out on top, which is part of the reason why he can't deny an offer to play a game. Why well, that's the thing that the doctors... That's so, that, yeah, and that's been a thing of his character from since his inception, really. Mm-hmm. Speak about Jesse's criticism of the German accent and the fluctuating mm-hmm. voices he does. Well, in the original, from my understanding, I've never seen the original serial. I just know knowledge based off of what I've read about it. The doctor managed to overcome the toy maker and escape his realm in, in the first time round by imitating his voice in order to cause the realm to collapse in on itself. Hmm. And he's one of those entities that will survive that because, you know, death is boring you know, to him. Like, death is an inconvenience for him, you know. Is that going to be hard to do? No, it's going to be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. Oh, really? And so I'd like to think that his fluctuating voices in this particular instance was him to kind of try to keep the doctor off balance and offset that as a protection measure. That makes sense. And, like, it was obviously, like, all of the different accents were affectations Mm -hmm. anyway. I just found them grating. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, well, that's all again, right then. Was, was <laughs> Sorry, I had probably to. I had to throw purpose. that in somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm sure that that was on purpose, but I yeah. it didn't. Just because someone is annoying on purpose doesn't make them less annoying. And, um, and that's totally fair. I respect that. There's some. <laughs> there's some, been some characters in certain movies who are annoying on purpose that I'm just like, fuck off. So it's a very Jim Carrey as Ace Ventura vibe. Yeah. Yeah, except nowhere near as transphobic, thank God. Yeah. Well, um, no, no, obviously <laughs> not. No, the exact opposite of that. But in terms of like, there are people out there that love those old Ace Ventura movies. Yes, exactly. So I used to be one of them. That's why I'm making the noise like I am. Okay. Yeah. I would also kind of just take issue with the idea of play being a fundamental force of the universe mm. um, and understand like, that and winning and losing being like being is the, this elemental thing where to my mind, one could argue that play is not necessarily a strictly human thing because mm. animals play um, yeah. non sentient beings, you know, they play without any problem, but like winning and losing is a fundamentally human thing. Um, and like, I would go so far as to say that play is not universal, especially as a fundamental force that like how many times I, it's been attributed to Einstein that God doesn't roll dice. Mm-hmm. Um, God does not play you know, dice with the universe. Yeah, right. Exactly. One could argue that the universe does not play. So like play as a fundamental force doesn't make sense to me. And I realize the doctor who isn't about making sense, but <laughs> It just like I kept bumping. It's one of those situations where you like you mentioned it in the beginning, Greg, where we need to have some level of consistency and some level of authority when we're talking about, you know, subjects so that the audience isn't focusing on that and they can focus on the story. And Mm -hmm. I spent the whole time this entire episode just bumping against every facet of the toy maker and 
his whole premise going like, why does he do that? Why is this here? I don't like this. This doesn't make sense. God, I mean, this was a guy who a character was created back in the 60s when they were just still throwing shit at the wall, trying to figure out the feel of the show. Sure, but so were the Daleks and they made the Daleks awesome. Yeah, (laughs) although I, I will admit one of my favorite little correlations I found when I was doing some research on the toy maker is that the original celestial toy maker serial was originally going to be concocted as a regeneration story for William Hartnell before uh, you know, of his you know health problems and everything, but he was still well enough to kind of complete the story. And so they had to retool the regeneration thing to the later story that debuted the Cybermen, the 10th planet, I think it was called. And yet when they bring him back here, now we've got, something else it's still a regeneration in a way so mm-hmm. it's like almost like a little payoff to what the original intent was back in the day which i thought was kind of nice that is i nice. would i would i would point out that you know the daleks unfortunately are not always awesome mm. uh consider the skittles daleks that were introduced at one point i like them but i understand yeah um <laughs> but at the same time you know when we talk about you can't take doctor who too seriously the the plot point that I immediately uh, always comes to mind is uh, the Daleks take Manhattan. Mm. The, I mentioned that briefly in a conversation with Kevin in the past in terms of like, oh, lightning passes through the doctor's body and that changes DNA. What? Ah, but it's unexpected. It's unexpected because it's nonsensical. I understand your point, Jesse, in that I would hold a doctor special up to a higher standard than just your exactly. average uh, episode. If this was, you know, season four, episode six of, you know, the David Tennant run and it had the toy maker in it, I wouldn't have any issue. This would be mm-hmm. just fine. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that this episode was worthy. This premise, this villain was mm-hmm. worthy of the final special in mm. this series specifically I mean, that's understandable although i mean i i mean i thought it was just i i didn't have a problem with it probably because it's like a big deal since we've seen this villain on screen and plus it's the 60th sure. anniversary you also have a different connection to doctor who than i do um yeah, so that makes total <laughs> sense like i'm i'm not saying that the two of you are wrong for liking mm. it i know um it just didn't resonate for me in any way because I ha- I have no connection to the toy maker. So seeing mm-hmm. I didn't yeah. get to be I wasn't like, oh, it's the toy maker. I was like, all right, who's this? Fandom is kind of a weird spectrum on its own. Listening to some of Jesse's very valid arguments and feelings, there are elements of how I remember Alejandra reacting to the empty child and the doctor dances. And she was a newcomer to Doctor Who whereas Jesse and Kevin are in some ways much bigger fans of this IP than I am. They made the effort to stake her on all the new media, after all. Some fans will go out of their way to explain perceived or real inconsistencies. Some of them will notice fridge logic much quicker than others. Some fans have their own pet peeves, or specific things that they care most about, that the media fails to address in a way that they want. And a lot of the time, none of this actually matters, because the majority of audiences won't care, due to not thinking about it that deeply. Does it sound good in the moment? Then that'll do. As Alejandra put it, sounding clever without actually being clever. But Jesse is right. When the specials are carrying this much weight, 
regarding this doctor and Donna and all the stuff discussed previously, getting the details right is more important. It's part of the reason members of the School of Movies community were so disappointed by certain aspects of Infinity War, as it relates to Thanos and Gamora, or Endgame as it relates to Fat Thor. These are big important stories, and therefore the things we bump against stand out more. I was recently rewatching Avatar The Last Airbender for the first time with Maureen, and in book three suddenly had a major issue with the character of Mai that M kind of had to talk me through. That was my sticking point, and it's only through a lot of conversation and analysis that I came to some kind of peace with it. But it's because of Maureen's interpretation that that was possible. The show didn't necessarily give me enough to work with on its own. But that's just my experience. We're all going to have our own experiences. And in the end, the best thing to do is talk about them so that people feel heard and there can be a proper critique of the media without doing harm to others. There should be no media above good faith critique. Honestly, I'm I seesaw to one side or the other. I like, and we'll talk about it in a moment. I like the giggle primarily based on my enjoyment of Neil Patrick Harris being a ham because he's clearly having so much fun with it. Oh, that is. whole that whole Absolutely. spice up your life um, yeah. sequence. That that but, song is actually very appropriately picked because apparently there was some lyrics in there that are considered racist nowadays. So it would make sense oh, that the toy maker would pick that wow. song. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. I did yeah. not. I can't remember I the not... exact lyrics, but I just I remember hearing that song once and hearing one of those lyrics that I'm like, oh, that sounded kind of racist. And then mm-hmm. hearing it in this episode, I'm like, oh, of course the toy maker is going to pick this song, isn't he? The lyrics that Kevin are referring to are in the second verse, and therefore it's also the verse that is talked over a great deal in the special, probably for good reason. To lay it out, Yellow Man in Timbuktu, Color for Both Me and You, Kung Fu Fighting Dancing Queen, Tribal Spaceman and All That's In Between. I maybe get that it wasn't intended to be offensive? Maybe. But in this day and age, it sticks out like a sore thumb. At the same time, it's really the culmination of what was already brought up in Wild Blue Yonder about how to resolve both the Doctor's trauma and the culmination of Donna finally getting the Doctor with this face to permanently stop because he needs to stop he needs to be able to sit down and heal basically Mm -hmm. but in terms of like problematic or parts of this episode that didn't land with me the biggest thing and it's there's an irony here because Moffat is currently trying to do something similar with the show that he is doing about cancel culture. Yeah, whenever cancel culture is brought up in a media context, I always sort of grit my teeth a little bit because this can be handled very badly. And I don't know that this episode addressed it very well. 
And the only reason it didn't bug me more is that it it basically it was a, a, a version of like a name drop and didn't get too heavily into actually addressing that idea. It's really just that I felt like, okay, you brought up that bugbear. Are you going to address it properly? No? Okay, moving on then. Because it means something very different depending on whether you're talking about people with power or people without power. There's a whole conversation that can be had about this that I don't feel up to addressing. But in short, it takes a lot to make someone powerful actually go away. Sure, the system punished Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby long after they had done the maximum harm possible. But a lot of people that we rather didn't still have a platform and still have fans, either in spite of or because of their beliefs and behavior. Meanwhile, people with power can use their fans to chase critics off social media and harass them even beyond that or the mob itself can turn on someone unfairly. It's not a level playing field. So I mistrust whenever someone with power wants to bring up the issue. So I, yeah, I really do come down somewhere in the middle in terms of like how much I enjoyed this episode. I, I enjoyed them primarily off, just off of the strength of the primary two movers and shakers. But then also I feel at least like this was a good introduction to Shudi Gatwa's Doctor, which Definitely. gets followed up better in the Christmas special, I think. Because I agree. We, only get, we get a little bit of him here, but it's primarily to send off Tennant's Doctor. I was going to say, one thing I will appreciate is that he actually gets to interact with Tennant and everyone and everything. Instead of just showing up at the last minute and be like, hello, mm -hmm. roll credits. Yeah, you know, like, no, like I, you see in a lot of regeneration stories. It's a really radical change, and I actually love that. There's a fascinating emotional impact, and I don't think that they've ever done this before. The doctor hugging one of his incarnations. Yeah. That's, you, you were talking a moment ago about feminine energy. That's an Virtually. injection of feminine energy that I don't feel like we've seen before, even in previous shows where different versions of the doctor have interacted i think the closest that has ever come before was that one not even a special but like the brief little side bit where tenant gets to interact with five who of course is technically his father-in-law i love being you back when i first started at the very beginning i was always trying to be old and grumpy and important like you do when you're young and then I was you. And I was all dashing about and playing cricket and my voice going all squeaky when I shouted. I still do that, the voice thing. I got that from you. Oh, and the trainers. And... Snap. Because you know what, Doctor? You were my Doctor. Today is to come. All my love to long ago. But yeah, no, that, that that ending sequence where 15 is just sort of gently talking 14 down and getting him to where he needs to go. No, you're thin as a pin, love. You're running on fumes. That's what I keep saying. 
I'm just post by generation. Ah, it's more than that. Our whole lifetime, that doctor that first met the toy maker never, ever stopped. Put on trial, exiled, key to time, all the devastation of Logopolis. Adric. Adric. River Song. All the people we lost. Sarah Jane has gone. Can you believe that for a second? I loved her. I loved her. And Rose. But the Time War, Pandorica, Mavic Chen. We fought the gods of Ragnarok and we didn't stop for a second to say, what the hell? People, I'm fine. I'm fine because you fix yourself. We're Time Lords, we're doing rehab out of order. You're saying you need to stop. I don't know how. Well, I can tell you. Because you know what I did? When you went flying off in your blue box space bear, I stayed in one place. And I lived day after day after day. What drive me mad? Yeah. It does. We keep on going. And that's the adventure. From one adventure you've never had. Because I've You changed your face. And then you found me. Do you know why? No. To come home. We're doing therapy out of order. <laughs> a very uh, That sounds like a Moffat line, but mm -hmm. the fact Russell wrote, T. Davies wrote it makes it even better. Mm -hmm. But that's also... <sighs> part of why again the whole with the people as you were saying a moment ago jesse that take issue with the idea of two doctors existing at the same time it's very clear to me from the words used in the setup and everything like that basically centered around some of the other media that i've seen recently i, I brought up spider-man 2 and the whole thing where right. Miles is taking the mantle from Peter, who needs desperately to take a break after everything that he's been through. There is some of that same energy here. And I'm sure that there's a possibility that we will see 14 again, but only when it's really important, because when therapy and trauma are a big portion of this ending the way they are, the important thing is that you can't interrupt that process on a whim. When you interrupt therapy, you get John Wicks. Do you want John Wicks? Well, he did say it was going to take a million years for him to get mm. better. Yeah, well, I mean... I feel like now, since they're own their own separate doctors, my my uh, I've seen this floating around the internet. There's either like a headcanon, the possibility that 14 could turn into the curator mm -hmm. to kind of yeah. tie off that bow. 
uh, and obviously he's not going to spend a million years with Donna. Donna right. is mortal, so she won't last that long. But I will add that there was Kevin. I don't remember if you're the one that shared this on um, Twitter again, but there was the implication at one point that the TARDIS basically set this sequence of events into motion because she knew it's what the doctor needed. The TARDIS and the doctor always had this kind of symbiotic link. And it yes. was addressed in a Nat Smith episode, the doctor's right. wife, where, mm-hmm. especially in that moment where, you know, the doctor has it out with the woman who's taken on the TARDIS's essence, basically like, since we're talking with mouths, not really an opportunity that comes along very often, I just want to say, you know, you have never been very reliable. And you have? You didn't always take me where I wanted to go. No, but I always took you where you needed to go. And obviously, as earlier alluded to, Whovian continuity is a complex web where the current showrunners and writers build off of some parts of the past and choose to ignore other parts that are inconvenient or contradictory. But the idea introduced in this episode has incredible metatextual weight, where the Watsonian and Doylist explanations for why certain things happen in Doctor Who cross over. On one hand, you could easily say that the TARDIS runs on plot, and always has. But when you're as powerful as the TARDIS is, connected to all space and time, one could argue that a version of Clark's law applies here. Technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. In this case, precognitive pattern matching looks like literary contrivance. 13 transformed into 14, and once that happened, the TARDIS may have helped to set the events of these three specials into motion with this outcome in mind. Like, to a certain extent, it's like, well, okay, I can't stop this from happening, so all I can do is to try and... Nudge it in the right direction. Exactly, nudge it in the right direction, which means that I'm also not worried about 14's therapeutic process being interrupted because his version of the TARDIS is basically going to assure, no, 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 even if you travel through time, I'm not taking you anywhere where you're going to have to be the doctor again. You just get to be someone healing now. And in the meantime, the other version of the TARDIS be like, okay, I'm going to take 15 to all the hot spots to make sure that the universe stays together. Yeah. Uh, and it makes sense that 14 could now rest easy, assured that the universe is still in safe hands with mm-hmm. his successor. I thought how Davies handled that was pretty well done, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, emotionally satisfying, even if the, uh, the execution wasn't always the best. I've definitely heard in places that there are people be like, okay, so Davies is the showrunner again, which means that, you know, for good or for like all of the issues that might have been present with Davies previously, his strengths are going to be coming back into play, but also his weaknesses as well. Yeah. And, you know, different showrunners are always going to have like Moffat certainly had his. Yeah. And I know that there are a lot of people that are unhappy with the places that Chibnall took Whitaker's doctor. I haven't dived into any of those criticisms yet or anything like that. because I've seen quite a few of them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to make sure that I'm getting good faith arguments, but I also want to 
that is part of the reason, Kevin, why I wanted to do a Who homework with you is that as a big booster of the Doctor, I wanted to hear the good stuff. Yeah, um, I get that. But by the same token, you know, because you just sort of have to take Doctor Who with a bit of a, a grain of salt. And when you hear Jesse and Kevin laughing here in a second, it's because they thought I made a joke. But I actually just forgot about the recent significance of grains of salt. I, I also just sort of <laughs> on some level take it in stride. You know, like if you're going to be a Doctor Who fan, this is what you're getting yourself into. It's that, not that's been pretty much my mantra since I started watching the show, really. And mm -hmm. even my mom, who watched a lot of Tom Baker's run and then tapered off after that, mm -hmm. was like, just go with it. Just enjoy the ride. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, I will. <laughs> And it's not like other shows don't have this issue either. Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, DC. These are all franchises that have been around for decades that have fallen prey to bad writing, lazy writing, and continuity issues. In the case of Doctor Who, maybe the fact that it doesn't take itself too seriously helps ease tension. But having taken time to peruse both the good faith and bad faith arguments regarding recent Whovian discourse, I sadly fear that doesn't always work. Even I have gotten on my soapbox about Moffat's choices, and I also need to just let go of that, since it seems like there's genuinely some good storytelling during the time of the Twelfth Doctor that I missed out on. So Still we've been did. kind of tap dancing around it greg should we have that argument on uh like talk about like what the problems with or like why somebody would have a problem with this ending and see if we can kind of put that to bed well okay so as someone that enjoys doctor but is perhaps less invested in the doctor yeah why don't you start getting <laughs> into it jesse yeah, I mean, first, the bad faith arguments that you were talking about are certainly out there and they are certainly bullshit. The idea that there is a certain subset of cretinous shitheel who is going to take this by generation as an excuse to say Shudigat was not the real doctor mm -hmm. and yep. he's not my doctor. Tenant is my doctor and everything that happens, like as far as I'm concerned, Doctor Who is over because mm -hmm. we're not going to get to see da David, like the real doctor's exploits anymore. This is some other doctor. And that's all garbage and that's all bullshit. They're starting over with season one. That, that is why I'm making this argument. Right. Yeah. Please. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I think know, that there, I'm just saying. there is a valid argument to be upset or to not appreciate this ending and that is uh similar to you talked about spider-man 2 the video game it's similar to me to what the arguments that a lot of people had with tom holland spider-man mm. in that part of spider-man's um fundamental defining characteristic is that he's on his own mm. and he has to do everything himself he you know, can't reveal his secret identity except for the times that he can, and then it gets erased or whatever. Who cares? But for the most part, part of his struggle is the fact that he has to do everything on his own. So the MCU Spider-Man bounced off a lot of people because one, his friends immediately find out. He keeps bringing people into his circle and building up this support network. And he's got Tony Stark as this like mentor patron 
So he's got like his suit is kitted out with Stark tech. Tony knows who he is. MJ knows who he is. Ned knows who he is. Eventually his mom knows who he is. And he's and got, hey, but go like, on. Who, what did I say? You said his mom. It's oh, Aunt yeah, May. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even Aunt though he's, she's played by the immaculate Marissa Tomei, who is a lot right. younger than most depictions of Aunt May, it's still Aunt May. Which mm. is like, it makes sense to me because an aunt should be your mom's age, um, yeah. not your grandma's age. I'm an uncle <laughs> of an eight-year-old, and he he even addresses me like by my first name, like MCU Peter addresses Aunt May by her first name. And I'm cool with it. Yeah, so. exactly. But like with this huge support network that he's built, his adventures don't feel like Spider-Man adventures anymore. They feel like some other superhero who has Spider-Man's powers. Hearing this argument always feels weird to me. Because while I have not been reading Spider-Man in an unbroken line since the 1960s, I have followed Peter for large swaths of time. And the idea that Spider-Man always works alone is wrong on so many levels. Does he often deal with much more powerful opponents and have to come up with diagonal thinking in order to defeat them? Absolutely. But the number of people Peter has worked with, several of whom even knew his secret identity, could fill a book. One of the first major story arcs I ever read was a team-up with Daredevil one of Peter's standard allies who also knows his identity. Black Cat, Thomas Fireheart, Hobie Brown, Flint Marco, Eric Masterson, Flash Thompson, Doctor Strange, Wolverine, and Johnny fucking Storm. Oh, and bringing up the Human Torch, Peter has been both a member of the Fantastic Four and the Avengers. At one point, Mary Jane and Aunt May were living in Stark Tower, which was around the time the idea of the Peter and Tony mentorship first originated in the comics, making the MCU version an idea borrowed from there. There was once a monthly comic book called Marvel Team-Up, which was almost exclusively Spider-Man teaming up with other heroes. And when the 90s introduced a slew of new heroes like Darkhawk, Sleepwalker, and the New Warriors, a team-up with Spider-Man was often one of the first things they did. It could be argued that no one has networked better with other heroes than Peter Parker. And the only reason why Peter so often has to face opponents alone is because that's how stories usually work. Unless there is a planned crossover, characters have to solve their own problems in their own comics. That's not just a Peter thing. Iron Man doesn't ask for Peter's help during the Armor Wars story arc. Although, Tony does have his own supporting cast that did help him. Regardless, I could also make the argument that making all Spider-Men the same is an idea across the Spider-Verse was deliberately trying to puncture. But I'm realizing now that my love of Spider-Man has kind of derailed us a bit here, as well as made me defensive and heated. You know, we haven't heard from Flat Toby in a long while. Toby, please say something funny to take things down a notch. This piece of media is very much like this other piece of media. Uh, okay. 
Well, yes, that is technically true. Never mind. Let's get back to Doctor Who. With this by generation with you know sending tenant like letting tenant retire in a home somewhere with his own copy of the tardis while shooty got what it goes off gallivanting around the universe it could be argued that this is kind of a similar situation where when things get bad like when it comes to the time where the doctor can't do this on his own can't do this with his companions where in previously he would have had to pull a miracle out of his ass and just come up with something on the fly and improvise and, you know, have this real tension be that like, this could go wrong. Everything could break. There is always going to be something in the back of his mind where, you know, if I can't do this, I can get help. I know where the old doctor is. I can go find him and we can tag team this together. It's, not quite a get it a jail free card, but it's close. Um, yeah. And that sort of fundamental having to do everything yourself and having to be on your own with just you and the companion and the TARDIS and your screwdriver is now dampened because when push comes to shove, if I have to, I can go get another doctor and mm. we can we can do this with two Time Lords and two TARDISes and two sonic screwdrivers and effectively double our chances of success. Okay, so <laughs> I would argue, and again, I this is based off of my limited experience, that part of the canon of Doctor Who is that whenever the situation is serious enough, the show always brings in other Doctors. Yeah, it, but they always have to contrive a narrative reason for why they're all converging on one another and why the, all the other doctors don't remember it. But at the same time, it's like one could argue this is just contriving it in advance. Sure. By the same token, I also like I'm not trying to um, deny that there is a potential legitimate argument there. When Shudi Gatwa is the first black doctor... Yes, I know about Joe Martin, but she was a guest star, not the main event. And also the first Doctor played by a queer actor. Progressive fans might be worried about the existence of the white, straight David Tennant Doctor undermining that. Especially if he gets pulled in. All I can say in response is that in the recent weeks and months, I've been keeping tabs on a lot of Doctor Who articles. And the vibes I'm getting feels like they're pretty committed to Gatwa and confident that he's going to win audiences over on his own. But I feel like there would probably also be a strong compulsion against that because isn't there a greater concern that if he does that, he runs the risk of breaking himself, which would be a far more concerning thing like okay you've saved the day against the daleks or the cybermen or whomever but if you cross over your own time if you cross over your own timeline like that in this case through the metaphor of trauma could you end up breaking things worse and yes i also get that explanation is a watsonian one and on top of that Doctor Who breaks its own rules all the time. We were literally just talking about this. 
But I've read a lot of stories where authors come up with good explanations all the time why the plot cannot simply be more easily resolved by other powerful heroes stepping in, so that the lead hero has to do it themselves. A moment ago, I was just talking about how many heroes Spidey has teamed up with, but there have been plenty of comic stories where the big super teams were off dealing with their own crises, and Peter had to go it alone or get the help of his less powerful friends. You want non-comics examples? In Star Trek Deep Space Nine, they were often underpowered in dealing with major threats, but had to resolve it themselves because Starfleet was too far away or had other complications. Even during the Dominion War, the Enterprise never shows up to save the day, overshadowing the DS9 team. In the Baldur's Gate video games, the heroes meet Elminster the Sage multiple times, but he doesn't interfere, because that would up the stakes and bring divine forces into conflict. And in everyone's favorite kid's animation, The Last Airbender, the gang is constantly meeting powerful benders that help them in a pinch, but don't constantly follow them around solving all problems. One of them deliberately lets himself get captured because not fighting results in a better overall outcome. Good writing can solve these problems. And even though Doctor Who hasn't always had good writing, it's succeeded more than it's failed. Put another way, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. But it's not necessarily the most interesting. You know who said that? The third Doctor. So, it doesn't feel like something that 15 would ever do like he he would probably do his best to fix it himself if at all possible Mm -hmm. because the danger of causing more damage by calling on 14 would be too great yeah that's my personal take on it Um, sure see that yeah and Uh, that's fair i think that that's really tricky because on the one hand they're two completely separate people now so theoretically what happens to david Tennant shouldn't have any effect on shooty gotwa but he also just said i'm okay because you get better yeah exactly. Um, so it, it does kind of you know boggle the mind a little bit and brain things timey-wimey wise they introduced that idea in the day of the doctor like that was supposedly how they got out of it that the war doctor starts up something that continues on to like be incorporated in the 11th doctor's uh uh sonic screwdriver, sonic screwdriver even mm. though technically they're all in the same room and no time should have passed so again as you say right. timey wimey so it's he's Davies is kind of borrowing a little something from Moffat there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which I I don't mind because you know writers will crib anything from anyone if it works. If an an idea for somebody if it works, I mean Davies cribbed some stuff here and there from other writers when he under sure. his first time as showrunner too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, like that space rift in the first and uh, that Eccleston episode with Charles Dickens became a big plot point in Torchwood, you know, mm-hmm. which Davies created. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I, I think go. that that's definitely a good read. And I like that is a way to kind of keep that from happening mm-hmm. um, if they go there, which yeah. I hope they do. I would love to see that. Um, Me too. 
it's one of those things where it's not going to be a problem until it is mm -hmm. um, where, you know, it's it's kind of like to go back to like, wow, we're we're really hitting on all of the like properties that toxic shit boys hate. Mm -hmm. But in The Last Jedi mm. with oh, yes. the, like I the Holdo maneuver, so right, where, you know, she goes into hyperspace like in front of the Armada and just, mm -hmm. you know, destroys all of them. The immediate backlash there of why aren't haven't they just always been doing that and why don't they just always do that from now on it's so much easier and so much cheaper to mount a hyperdrive to a rock and <laughs> you know throw it at something this is the end of space battles right and so like it it, it runs the risk of it's not going to be a problem until the first time it happens Mm -hmm. And then from then on, it's always going to be in the back pocket. Should we go get the doctor? Should we go get mm -hmm. the other one? Do we yeah. need this? Is this going to be a problem? And they're going to they're gonna have to continually make sure that they put that back in the box. Like you can't mm -hmm. you can't close the lid once it's opened. And it, it just it hopefully will never be a problem. But mm -hmm. well, it's, I, I, it's a risk. I'm trusting Davies to do something about sure. it, address it in some way that will satisfy at least enough people that I'll be like, oh, okay, fine. Of course, part of what Jesse is describing here is a legitimate problem with literary power creep in general. And when you're dealing with something as powerful as time travel, that is some of the ultimate power creep. It's part of the reason Alex went to Jesse in the first place, to try and avoid some of the issues associated with time travel for his new century novel, Back in Time Plus Space. Never mind simply the idea of having easy access to a second doctor. Why don't you just travel back in time and prevent the catastrophe from happening in the first place? There has already been a lot of writing trying to circumscribe the power of time travel itself just to preserve dramatic tension. Hell, I've got something that will really bake your noodle. If 14 and 15 exist simultaneously, how does what happened to 14 even affect 15? This isn't the same issue as Day of the Doctor, because in the past, one doctor replaces another. Here, 14 isn't replaced by 15. They are technically no longer the same person, same as what happened in the Metacrisis. I'm sure there is a way they could explain it, but when dealing with Doctor Who, sometimes you literally just have to say wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey. Causality doesn't work the same way. And therefore, you have to go with what feels emotionally true rather than logically true. And I'm going to leave it there, because otherwise I'll get onto a rant about Moffat and the Weeping Angels and... Let's just finish already. Yeah. <laughs> as amusing as the running joke as it is, part of me is also hoping that eventually the fun that they're having with this idea will die down and 15 will go back and fix the Mavity problem. <laughs> yes. I hope they don't. I think that it's... I, I, I although want it to just although I read an article on Den of Geek recently that the that the Mavity thing actually predates with the Wild Beyonder thing, yeah. because apparently it was mentioned in a Torchwood audio, too. That yeah, I, I read the same article, yeah. I don't know. I think that some writing jokes have staying power and some don't. We'll see.
I guess we have to appreciate the mavity of the situation at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, everyone's sort of getting in on the joke a little bit. I think when we when Alex was doing the uh, the Gravity Falls shows, that someone... made me laugh so damn hard. <laughs> the one like, post... Alex, you son of a. I don't think it was Alex that posted it in there. Someone else. Someone else did, but I was like, I see what you did there. Yes. Well, but they, they're just sharing it on the Discord. Someone else is the one that actually made the alternate Gravity Falls open and no, then changed it. No, it's wonderful. <laughs> in terms of like running gags, I think my favorite running gag of Doctor Who is the one planet, Raxacor Cephalopatorius. Oh, yes. That everybody talks about not being able to pronounce, but no one ever pronounces wrong. Like everybody yeah. gets it right every single time. I mean, Russell T. Davis so always loved that monosyllabic stuff. And he even, <laughs> the, including that Jagrafess alien from that episode, the long mm -hmm. game. And they cut to him in the audience. And she's like, I don't know what everyone's talking about. I have an easy time saying it. And then I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, of course you have an easy time saying it. You're the one who wrote the damn thing, you idiot. <laughs> Also, I want to see the number of takes it took for them to pronounce it correctly on camera. <laughs> right? Especially exactly. Simon Pegg in that episode. If they just sprinkle in, you know, yeah. Mavity once or twice a season, I, I think that'll just, that'll give me a chuckle. And it's time once again for Frank Miller doesn't get how memes work, since he now says goddamn Batman three times over the course of their conversation. You can't keep a meme alive by just repeating it over and over. You have to do something different with it or have it infrequent enough that nobody minds the reference. That's the important thing with a running joke is to not, don't over-egg the pudding, as they, as they would say. So... <laughs> um, so honestly, that's pretty much it. We've got a good, uh, a little bit over two hours of content here, but Fun. there, are there any final thoughts about these three? Did we want to get into, I know that you've watched the Christmas episode, but I, I've seen it. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to say, mention one last thing about Starbeast. I didn't get a chance to mention, but, um, yeah. The actor who plays Donna's husband, I'm glad they brought him back because he mm. just brings this totally unfazed Phil Coulson-esque energy. <laughs> it's so, that is so just wonderful. I yeah. love characters like that. He just plays it so well, especially that moment where the beep is all, there's this kerfuffle going on and everything. And he comes in and he's like, daddy's home. And then he sees all this chaos going on. And he's just like, something sounds nice. And it turns out to be that tuna curry thing that, yeah. that Sylvia was making. It's a good concept in terms of like, yeah, no, any ridiculous situation yeah. needs one unflappable person that goes, okay, I guess we're doing this now. <laughs> yeah, it just, and I'm just like, I love that Phil Coulson energy. I'm so there for it. It's good stuff. I missed that in the MCU a little bit, actually. <laughs> um, but Jesse, have, have you seen the Christmas special yet? Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I don't know that there's a lot to say, like like you said we're coming up on two hours and mm -hmm. i think that yeah. it's probably like not a good idea to mm -hmm. open up and be like let's talk about the fourth one because we mm -hmm. could be here for another half an hour and i know kevin yeah needs to and go i gotta dinner get, and get dinner yeah. here soon so I'm, I'm starting to get summons from the wife i enjoyed it i'm really really looking forward to shooty Gatwa's season i did forget to mention when we started talking about the third one and somebody had mentioned earlier chibnall's tendency to um, sort of bookend themes and lines and sort of, you know, open and close sort of symmetrically. Um, I really appreciated how sort of at the end of the first special, 
Rose, like after they had let go of the energy, Rose is like, I think for the first time, I'm finally really me. Mm. And then the doctor echoed that after the by generation when he comes back and shooty got was like, I'm me. I'm really, really finally really me. And like, ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice. Th- I mean, Davies do- did that a little bit, too, to some degree, which I in his first era, which I really appreciated, mm. you know, a little bit of verbal continuity. Aside from, as you say, really enjoying the Christmas special, the only reason I didn't have a strong feelings about including it in our discussion is that it's very much like the beginning of something rather yeah, than yes. thematically specific to the first three specials. I'm right. very curious to see where Gatwa takes his doctor, where, where Russell takes 15 and what they start getting into, what they start doing with his energy and what they want to do with Doctor post the flux and the specials and everything else. But that that's the extent of my thought is being, okay, this yep. is our beginning. This is our new companion. Let's see where we go with this. Really like the Doctor. Really like Ruby Sunday. Looking forward to... Ruby's uh, awesome. Looking forward to seeing more. And that I think that'll do it. It was wonderful yep. having both of you on and having some fresh Glad energy. To be back. I like... <laughs> being able to intersperse non-new century content with new century content. I think that's what helps keep things fresh a little bit because doing sure. this for four years now. So, <laughs> so thank you for helping me do that. And if there's anything else that, that comes up that, you know, that I feel like I want to talk about and you would be interested in bringing your own insights and feelings and everything to, then I'm sure we'll have you back. Can't wait. Be more than happy to. Uh, I don't think I have a sign-off for Beyond the Wind or a Solid yet. Um, <laughs> we're eventually going to cover everything, everywhere, at all at once. So from a certain standpoint, Love it. it's all a multiverse. So we'll see you around the multiverse. Well, I close out my YouTube videos with see you around the fourth dimension. So Nice. Very appropriate. And that's another one in the can. Other than doing the Promised Who homework episode, I can't promise that we'll be coming back to Doctor Who much. When I originally took up the call of Alex and Alejandro for the horror homework idea, there was no intent to turn it into content. It was only after I was about halfway through that I realized I had a lot to say about those ten films, and therefore also a need to discuss them with friends. Beyond the Wind Door prior to that was just... An idea. There was an idea. One unrealized, but living in the fringes, as I kept sharing outtakes where me and Toby discussed other media. Our original impulse to cover Everything Everywhere All at Once, Season 1 of The Sandman, and a couple other things I proposed to Toby have yet to be realized. But horror homework opened up possibilities that led to more stuff with Alejandra, and then Kevin a very thorough analysis of Insomniac's latest Spider-Man game. And now this. Beyond the Wind Door is not a mission statement in and of itself. Not like our new Century shows, where our show is me and Toby processing a piece of media we love and therefore need to talk more about. New Century is pretty good. Hmm? Oh, yes, Flat Toby, well done. Uh, But as I was saying... I agree with you, Greg. What do you mean you agree with me? I didn't say anything. I disagree with you, Greg. That's not what I meant. Excuse me, I think Flat Toby has malfunctioned. Let me see. Let me just get out the... 
fuck's sake, this was supposed to be a minor gag. Why did I put so much effort into a Toby replacement? Have I told you about the cool thing my wife did today? Yeah, that's right, reverse the polarity. Uh-oh. Flat Toby! Disable! Code word! Petricor! Fucking hell. And I thought ChatGPT was bad. Why the fuck did I even install a Dalek claw that could strangle me? Uh, well folks, that is the first and last time I'm going to replace Toby with an AI. Until next time, here's a word from one of my favorite comedians from across the pond, doing his version of the Doctor Who theme. Tonight's show is a little different. Tonight's show is about a man who's not really a man. He's a doctor, but he's not really a doctor. Like Dr. Phil, but awesome. Most people in the United States of America have not heard of him. He's just like me in that regard. Who is he? He's the doctor. So when am I getting paid for these lines?